Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Good. Long time no talk to you. It has been a little while. I missed you. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I missed you as well. I, I, <laughs> you, threw, you threw me off. I didn't know. I, I, so I don't disarming. Know. I was disarming. I, I, I don't even know where to go next. Um, uh, why don't we? Why don't we thank some folks that have been helping us every week, and we missed last week as well. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent. Uh, Mailchimp sponsors every episode of Exponent. They've been around since 2001. The company started as a side project, funded by various web development jobs. Now they are actually the world's leading email marketing platform, and sending more than a billion emails a day. Mailchimp democratizes technology for small business, creating innovative products that empower their customers to grow. So uh, my thanks to Mailchimp, and I actually uh, I'm I'm pleased that we have Mailchimp as a sponsor for this particular episode, because I think they're actually an example of something that we're going to get into in in this podcast. That was a pretty excellent segue F- from from the rate, no less. I'm impressed. Well, thank you. I I, I have to re- I have to save my uh, save my dignity after being so completely <laughs> yeah disarmed at the beginning there. More than made up for it. <laughs> so so let's think, let's talk about Mailchimp. This isn't going to be a podcast. This is going to be the, the best, you know, the best sponsorship dollars ever. Mm. But Mailchimp is, you know, it's interesting because I write a lot about things like like obviously my big thing is like the aggregation theory thing, right? Which I'm attempting to link to less when I write because people are sick of it. But but the I this idea of the power that's derived from owning the the relationship with with the end user and it's really applicable to these platforms, right? You get, and you get these virtuous cycles because you're basically, it's creating like a two-sided market in, in, in many respects, but I think it matters where that market starts. It start like, and the, the idea that the internet has shifted from a world that was supply constrained and sub- driven by supply to a world that's driven by demand. Like, I think that, that, that shift is kind of the core shift of the internet, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. I mean, the amount of power that is derived by these platforms now when they have users hooked on them, it's it's kind of like the Pied Piper. Like if the users, the platform uh, plays its flute and the users just follow wherever they go. Right, absolutely. And, and But that doesn't mean that that's the only sort of business model, right? And uh, so I like talking about other business models just i mean it, it, i guess it, it's easy to to get stuck on that in part because those are the platforms that we all live on right they're all sort of shared experiences we're all you know we're all on facebook we're all on uh you know use we all google you know uber's obviously always at the at the top of the news services like airbnb are in the, in the headlines netflix is you know super interesting and these and they're all consumer face country you know companies by and large which makes sense because the whole point is these are they're all about demand. They're all about aggregating consumers. So of, there are going to be the sort of sexiest companies anyway. And so it's easy to sort of get fixated on that. Mm-hmm. And so like something like MailChimp, like MailChimp doesn't have any visibility, right? I use MailChimp for Shashekri. None of my and my readers know that it's MailChimp because like I reference it. And I guess at the very bottom of the email, there's some sort of reference to it in part because there's there's actually a bunch of federal law around sending email which uh, I could have a whole rant on, you know, like good-hearted, good, good, well-intended regulation around, uh, you know, reducing spam. That actually makes life very difficult, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but the, but Mailchimp, they built this very, you know, 
profitable business by, or I don't know their finances, it's a private company, but by all accounts, very, very, you know, Success. successful and profitable yeah. business and has, doesn't face the customer at all, right? They, they're building a tool for a business tool for other businesses to use. And it's a very successful, you know, it's a successful product. And it's a perfectly viable way to build a business. You don't have to build a business that aggregates consumers and then spins up the cycle from there. In fact, that's probably the absolute hardest sort of business to build. Mm, yeah. And I mean, they get a lot of visibility, but the amount of the amount of power that's required for those kinds of companies to exit the exit the atmosphere and end up in space it means that very few end up making it. And when people talk about building a business like that, I am inherently skeptical. Whereas the old fashioned way, which is uh, which is Mailchimp and the traditional B two B SaaS approach, where you get customers and you start building, and then you use the fact that you have customers and the revenue they generate to keep improving the product, which in turn gets you more customers and gets you this lead because other people can't invest all the money that you're making into improving the product. That's a phenomenal way of building a business as well. Yeah, it's so e- like so easy, especially in tech, to get focused on these big companies when mm. they are like that. They are the exceptions. That's not the norm, right? Mm-hmm. The, the sort of business that Facebook has, the sort of business that you know that 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 Google has, or or Netflix, or whatever you want to talk about, those are the rarities, and that makes them interesting. It certainly makes them. Uh, that's why I write about them and analyze them, and lots of other people pay attention to that, mm. but. You know, that doesn't mean that your business has to be like that, or that most of it be like that. I mean, my business isn't like that by by any means, and and so yeah, I, I think that that was sort of the uh, th- that's a point that I've made previously um, in the context of publishing this idea of I told this a few weeks ago the smiling curve, and the smiling curve is this idea that was uh, originated by a a guy named Stan Shu, which which was a the CEO of the Taiwan-based Acer, so Diego Taiwan. But mm. Acer was was they started out as a manufacturer by and large, where they would put pieces together and they would build they build PCs. Mm-hmm. And th- what what she, the reason he came up with this smiling curve is he was trying to actually it was an internal argument within Acer. Where what Acer was doing was Acer sort of had all their manufacturing centralized in Taiwan, and then they would ship the the PCs out, you know, all over the world and sell them. And he was trying to rejigger the business. And in this case, it, it, I mean, this is back in the early '90s, so it, it, we're still in the you know relatively early days of PCs. And what he wanted to shift it to was to have decentralized manufacturing where basically, or assembly, I should say, where in Taiwan they would do the more high-value manufacturing, which in that case was like motherboards and things like that. But the actual assembly of computers would be done in regional sort of manufacturing facilities all around the world. And they would buy like hard drives locally. They would fly in the motherboards from Taiwan. And then and there was a lot of resistance internally that, oh, what we're good at is manufacturing. We, why are we going to spread this out over the world? Like we, we have the best manufacturing facilities in the world here in Taiwan. Like we should keep doing it what it is. And he, and he was trying to convince his team internally that, no, to your, this is the worst place to be. There's, you're not adding any value. What is being done could be done anywhere. Like quite literally, that was his plan was to do it was to do it anywhere. And all the value is on the is on the ends. And the one end is the one that we just talked about. That's where the aggregators live, which is the consumer facing end, where you, where you're actually getting getting customers and you know and 
marketing and all. And he, I mean, he talked about things like marketing and and that sort of stuff because we're talking about selling like PCs. Like the internet wasn't even around back then, you know, like uh, quite literally the World Wide Web didn't exist. But the idea was the the consumer-facing parts were on one side and on the other side were the actual like components and components were really valuable if you had a in a component that was far superior than someone else. It could, that could be superior on a cost basis, could be superior on a performance basis. But to actually put the stuff together wasn't valuable at all. And it is this is particularly far sighted at this stage of the evolution of the PC industry to realize this because this was the I mean this was the heyday of of um, personal computers. This was the point at which it started to become clear that everyone was going to buy one and. Uh, the the recognition at this stage that actually we are just we're doing something anyone can do and we need to get out of this and we need to move it out and just focus on the bits that are really important like that realization was uh was far-sighted and this smiling curve concept that he introduced is just a fantastic way of looking at the world in terms of like what part of the value chain do you want to be in uh like and and analyzing it giving you a framework to figure that out it was it was really really impressive yeah, and it, what's funny is he formulated this in the, as you noted, in, in the context of PCs, right? And actually, in, in this case, the actual, uh, his focus was that Intel kind of owns the sort of mm. R&D side of things. And he was wanting, he, his vision was to push Acer to the right, where they're, they'd be focused more on, you know, selling you know the the selling of PCs and the marketing of PCs and kind of getting out of the manufacturing and by virtue of having these distributed sort of assembly sites that could be faster to market and all that sort of stuff. So it it, it just a, an idea of like how different the world was that that was actually a viable strategy and a successful one. Like Acer Acer pulled it off and they, and they were you know very profitable at, at at that point. Obviously that's you know that's kind of no longer the case. But what's fascinating is this smiling curve concept is incredibly powerful for the internet in particular because one of our very earliest podcasts right we we talked about the jungle right mm. where you're going to have these massive trees these huge platforms these huge companies the aggregators which we just talked about and then you're going to have all the sort of stuff on the jungle floor and kind of nothing in the middle because the the internet pushes business models to the extremes right and this is actually the, the smiling curve is kind of the formulation of that, mm. where the consumer-facing side on the right, there's a ton of value there, right? And you can build these massive platforms where you're adding all the consumers. And then on the left, basically component assembly, there is – like you can make money there as well. Now – Making money there is not easy. Like you don't you don't make money just by making components, right? I mean, there's there's a hundred there's a million factories turning out components in you know here in Asia in China or whatever. But you you can make money by making superior components. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that's easy. It's not easy at all. But it is possible and it is doable. And like so, when I first wrote about the smiling curve uh, a couple of years ago, I used the example of a company called I think I don't have in front of you Largan Precision, I believe, which they specialize in camera lenses for phones, and they they have a way of making smartphone camera lenses that is 
it's just ahead of everyone else and it's been ahead of everyone else. And and they're they make them and they invest in them and they keep going forward. And this company is worth almost as much as Foxconn, which everyone thinks about, oh, they make the iPhones. But wow. Foxconn is just they're just assembling stuff, mm. right? Largan Precision is making a irreplaceable component for high-end smartphones. Uh, yeah, and once you differentiate, I mean, you can yeah, you can differentiate on on two axes, right? Like it can either be uh, performance or quality, or you can differentiate on price. And uh, and if you can get if you can create something that everybody wants and can't get anywhere else, and if you're a company like Apple and you're selling an iPhone, and one of the points of differentiation for your product is the best camera, then you have to go to the best cam- camera manufacturer. And if they're able to produce a product that nobody that nobody else can uh, like match the performance of you're kind of in the same position that consumers are when it comes to buying iPhones it's like if you want the best you're going to have to pay a premium yeah sorry i was way off on that actually largan precision is worth four times as much as foxconn wow i mean and you think about it in terms of i mean I, and this is crazy cuz i'd never even heard of them until you mentioned and you think of it in terms of scale and everybody knows who foxconn is but fundamentally and i'm sure there's an element of them being able to deliver on time and in a scale that nobody that's hard to match but like assembly is one of these things that it it's kind of like a commodity and it's a kind of a race to the bottom and this is just like an amazing example of like the, the two ends of this, the, the ends of this smiling curve, right? Right, absolutely. And uh, actually another, uh, it, you just mentioned there's different ways you can compete on here. Yeah. So one is, it, 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 the whole area is really interesting. So Largan has like the camera ones, they have a way to make them that, that, no, one, that no one can match. Mm. Uh, and another example, actually one, uh, really one of my favorite examples is, is Samsung. Everyone thinks about Samsung and their consumer products, but the the core of Samsung and what drove Samsung's profitability for a long time, they had that. Then phones kind of came along, and they had a great like five year run. But now it's back to the rest of the company. The rest of Samsung Electronics is driving the profit. Mm. Is is component manufacturing in this case? What Samsung does is they in memory is is probably the most dominant example. Although they're they're, they're Doing the same thing, although they have competition uh, with, with processors, but with memory, they basically just in they had the uh, the guts to invest over basically a a multi decade period billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars into having the most advanced sort of uh, fabrication technology, mm. and they just had better they had better memory. And faster memory, and at that, that could be produced at a lower cost, and they won. And they won the market, and then they took all the profits that from winning the market and invested it in the next generation, right? And then they had faster memory that was produced at a lower cost because they had superior technology, and they took all the profits and they invested it in the next one, right? And here they're winning on a cost basis, where based on massive amounts of investment, massive amounts of R and D that you know very much rivals. You know the sort of consumer sides. If it exceeds it, like these building these fabs is incredibly expensive, mm. and so they have a defensible business that is not just defensible in the short term, but defensible sort of in the long term, and continues to be you know a huge part of what drives you know, what drives their profitability. 
Yeah, I mean, and in terms of defensible, like you think about you think about um, companies that are potentially thinking, well, the memory space, like I'm doing this market sizing, I've hired some consultants, I want to figure out what what market to get into next. Well, this memory business is a multi billion dollar business. Why don't we look at that? And then you see this company that's so far in front that's made all these investments, that's taking all these profits from delivering successfully, like the business model becomes self-reinforcing. They make the profits on the on this generation and then they use the profits to, to fund the next generation. And you're like, well, why would I get into that? Or if you're in it and you're unable to keep up, you start to pull out, which only further increases the virtuous cycle. It's, it's kind of like the platform effect is, on the consumer side, like once these networks start getting people on, you, it, it becomes really hard to arrest these virtuous cycles and then people drop out, which only accelerates it. Right, exactly. And you see that in in processors, like I mean, like in fabrication, like there's it's dwindling down to there being just a couple players because it's so expensive to to compete. And and yeah, and, and you end up getting you have just as much sort of consolidation and 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 dominance as you do on the consumer side. And you're right; it is a it is a similar it is a similar sort of dynamic. The the broader takeaway though is is it's so easy to get fo- focused on one side, but there there there's value on the other side. And we'll, let's stick with that. Like so, Samsung makes like the processor in your phone. They make memory and they make you know st- stuff like that. And that stuff like that's. It's it's profitable. It's valuable, just like the the phone is valuable. And in the case of Apple, it's profitable, right? Mm-hmm. What's funny is if you think about something like all these Android phones, everyone talks about no one no one making any profit on them. Well, no, there is profit being made in Android phones, right? It's not necessarily being made by the 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 selling to consumers, right? Like just being in the consumer market does not mean you're you're profitable. But all those sort of unprofitable, you know, phones or phones that that are you know breaking even the divisions at best. On the on the backside, you have folks like Samsung, you have folks like like Qualcomm, you have lots of folks who are making lots of money on these quote unquote unprofitable phones. I mean, and it, it makes sense when you th- like if you flip it over to the consumer side, it makes sense, right? Like. Uh, you look at all the uh, you look at all the Android phones. They tend to be cheaper than the iPhone. Or you look at like commodity PCs. They tend to be cheaper than than an Apple computer. And what Apple does is it takes its expertise and it takes what are typically now commodity parts. And let's just assume for argument's sake they are commodity parts. And then puts design and software and pulls it all together in such a package that it, it people's willingness to pay goes up. And that money, that's what they get to keep. And the rest flows to the same place that the commodity manufacturers, whether it's of PCs or phone, they still have to pay their suppliers as well. So Apple's playing in kind of the same space, but their ability to get people to pay more, they get to capture that as a result. Right, exactly. And 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 this is, you know, this is we've talked about this before, that Apple is actually very modular in many respects, mm. right? And where, but how do you make money? The, like, so making money is, I guess, to back up, kind of the, the big takeaway: making money is just not a, is not necessarily just about interact, touching the consumer. No, not at all, right? Yeah, you just said there's lots not. of examples about it, right? Um, and on the same token, making money is not just about making components, right? If you're making a bog standard component, you're go- someone else is going to set up shop next to you, and they're, and they're going to compete you down to zero. That's mm-hmm. like that's what happens, right? So how do you make money? You have to build some sort of moat. You have to build some sort of thing that makes you unique. And the most kind of common way is that you 
you bundle together two parts of the value chain, right? Where and you create a sort of exclusivity that is valued and people will pay for it. That's what Apple does, right? They bundle together what are all the parts of an iPhone, anyone can buy those parts by and large. I mean, the, obviously the Apple designs their own chips, but like, and which is which is valuable, make, make no mistake, but mm. just bear with me here. And, and so they're bundling together all those pieces that, you know, on balance aren't that different from all the pieces that go into a high-end Samsung phone, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. But they're bundling it with the uh, with iOS, which is exclusive to Apple, and then they make money. And, and again, it's not iOS by itself would not necessarily be val- valuable, right? It, it's in this case, Apple's bundled the fact that you can sell a physical device with the, the software differentiates, and so they've combined the differentiation of software with the sort of sellability of hardware, if that makes sense, totally. to create a very sort of profitable sort of enterprise. But it, the fact that it's bundled is key. And, and it, that's what, I mean, not to bang an old drum, but this whole integration of hardware and software, blah, 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 it's not just valuable from a user experience. It's valuable from a value chain extraction angle. Yeah, like totally. Like the it, the 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 fact that they've bundled the two things together enables them to make money. They have the software and the hardware, and that's why that's why Google struggled so much getting into the phone the phone space when they started providing the hardware because the software is effectively commoditized. So they just have to try and build better hardware. But that is a that is a much much harder game to get into because chances are you're using the same hardware like. How are you going to find some piece of hardware that nobody else has? Like, where are you going to go? And if someone has created this amazing camera that's better than what everybody else can make, why on earth would you just sell it to Google? Why on earth wouldn't you try and make everybody who wants the best camera buy that camera as well? Right, exactly. And and, and on the flip side, that's why, you know, Google, there's no real way to make money from Android, right? Again, we've talked about this a million times. I think there was valid strategic reasons to make Android free and open source. I don't know that I, I question whether it would have been successful as it was had it not been, right? But the fact of the matter remains, once it's once it you've gone down that path, you've sort of foregone, you know, value extraction. Because yes, you have you own software, great. Google has software that 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 touches all kinds of people. And yes, they make money, you know, through they they get data on consumers and searches in front of people. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not it's again, I don't I don't think it's even a bad decision in the first place. And yes, I know it's valuable, you know, going forward. But the fact remains it's not like iOS valuable because it's not attached to anything. It's not attached to a means of extracting value. Totally. Um, I want to back up to one other the point that you made around these things bundling. And I think bundling can be a key element of being able to extract value. And it depends where you are in the value chain and what the business model looks like. But it is possible to extract value. It is possible. I mean, the key here is differentiation. And one way of differentiating is to bundle. And you have some unique element that you bundle together and therefore no one else can match you. But the key element is differentiation. And to go back to your earlier example, example of the camera manufacturer and Foxconn, the camera manufacturer, and maybe in some sense they are bundling something together, but if you just think of the camera as a widget that you buy, they've managed to develop a camera that is better than everybody else. And that is the that is the core 
part of of how you make money. You have to be able to differentiate in some way that other people can't match and then they will pay more. And in Apple's case, it's putting the hardware and the software together and their unique their unique stranglehold on the software. In this instance, at the other, and it's on the other end of the smiling curve, they've figured out how to make a, a camera that's better than anyone else can make or Samsung with the memory. They've figured out how to do it in a way that no one else can match. It doesn't have to be bundled though. Right. Well, because better, be, better could be cheaper. Like, Correct. It, and so you can compete on cost and competing on cost is really hard, right? And the, the way, it, the, but the way you can succeed, and the way Samsung succeeds, for example, is the the economics of producing chips are such that you, you <laughs> if you have a superior process and superior scale, you can just your cost basis is lower. It's the Bezos quote about like if you have the biggest lungs, lower the oxygen in the room. Like you've they've just spent so much that it, the market only can really bear to support one player. Right, exactly, and 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 again, and, and so uh, broader point. There's not one business model. I think your point here is is is, is well put. Right, you have to have some sort of differenti- differentiation. Period. Right, yeah. and we always think about differentiation as being you can charge more for it, but often it can be that you can charge less. Right, yeah, that that's totally. differentiation a, as well. It, but you can do it on a sustainable basis when n- you know none of your competitors can. Spot on. Anyhow, the big takeaway to this whole point though is. Where is there no value? There is no value in doing. I mean, this is, this is kind of cliche. There's no value in doing something that anyone else can do, right? That that's 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 pretty obvious. <laughs> I mean, pretty obvious. I, I mean, it it is pretty obvious, but like it makes it like it, it allows you to predict so many things. It allows and it, it and you have used it to predict so many things with what seems like complete prescience, like the collapse of the newspaper model. Because in a, in a world of the internet where where you have to have differentiated news, if all you're doing is putting together pieces of news from all around the world, if you're on a computer, like that's anybody can do that now. Like you have to find some means of differentiation and having a cost structure of an old world newspaper just to pull pieces of news together isn't going to isn't going to do well. And and to like to take uh to take a good old example from uh, our last episode of Uber like they start off by paying drivers lots but driving a car is something that anybody can do and you can see the direction that this is going to head like they are going to be a commodity provider and the platforms are going to push the prices down on people yeah um i get no credit for saying that newspapers are going to fail i think they had failed long before i came along okay um, just but i i appreciate i appreciate the kind words but now i'm kind of questioning all of the compliments i've gotten from you because that was oh, the, no the, I, I mean like i, I don't know <laughs> you're you're the way in which you've talked about like the way in which so the first time i'd ever seen the smiling curve was in the context of the media industry and um the way in which that was me it, yeah, that was you. That was the first time I'd seen I'd seen the smiling curve and then it was in the context of news and this notion that like I it's on some level people intuitively understand that yeah, the New York Times is probably going to get by and there are also these like these folks like Andrew Sullivan that are somehow managed to like pull something off, but I don't quite get it. And this framework and the way you applied it to the media industry suddenly made it so clear. It's like, oh, well, I, I know what's going to happen to all these poor newspapers in the middle of nowhere. Like, yeah, they were already failing, but I could like the, the, the prescience with which I could now look at something 
something. And within a snap second, I could just say, look, is it differentiated? And if it's if it's differentiated and targeting a niche, does it have the appropriate business model to do so? Or if it's going mass market, does it have the appropriate business model? Like your application of the smiling curve here in the media industry just made it so it was like, I can look at it snap second later. I know exactly what's going to happen. Well, what's, and what's interesting about about the internet is the internet, like, so in the context of, you can see it in manuf- like, uh, you know, manufacturing. We talked about in, in this article is about cars, which we can get to in a moment. I know, I know you love talking about cars. I love cars. <laughs> but, you know, where the, there's actually putting the, well, let's talk about Foxconn, right? Foxconn is just like assembling the phone, right? Mm-hmm. There's no value there. Acer was just assembling computers and there's value on, on the sides. What's, what's about the internet, and this, this kind of gets back at the aggregation theory in why what I was trying to get at with that is because the internet, there's zero marginal cost to the production of content on the internet. Like once mm. it's out there, like there's there's this tweet. Uh, someone tweeted something. There, there was a video that was uncovered of uh, Ilea of her performing on the Jay Leno, Leno show, and the person tweeted this and like, oh, this is so rare. It's it's amazing we found this video clip, and I mean, I, it's not rare anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like the moment the moment that clip was tweeted or posted on the internet, it instantly became the exact opposite of rare. It became infinite in a split second because it's, it's reproduced endlessly, right? And that video has mm-hmm. now been viewed, you know, hundreds of thousands or million, millions of times. And the internet just, it doesn't just make the middle untenable. It utterly and completely like eliminates the middle, right? The middle's, the middle's gone. And, and so what happens is if you think about content in the context of media is what what are the components of media? What's the components of a newspaper? It's the individual articles. It's the individual authors, the people who are actually writing this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Or creating the podcast or being on a video or whatever it might be. And, and, the, and you think about it, like if the, you have these platforms, Facebook or Twitter or just the web as a whole, the web is, you know, it's not necessarily a value extraction platform, but it is a place where the entire world is aggregated, mm. right? And there's no there's no need for anything in the middle. It's it's completely gone. And so, like, obviously, I'm an example of this. Can go directly to customers. Can connect with them directly in a way that was literally impossible before. The moment where it clicked with me was podcasts, and this was before we started. But I was I moved out to California, and uh, I rented a car in Sirius XM. I had Sirius in my car and I was listening to, I have this thing for electronic dance music, long time listeners will know, and I was listening to one of those channels. And every time I was I was listening to one of the DJs, they'd like, check out our podcast on the iTunes store. I was like, finally, I was I just assumed it was going to be some cut price thing because it was free. And I downloaded it and it was exactly the same with no ads. It was the, the sound quality was the same. It was free. And I was like, oh my God, like radio. Now I don't have to just be limited to the geographic constraints. And it used to be local for AM or FM or even national for satellite radio. Now I can listen to anybody. The, the content that I am most interested in anywhere in the world from anyone. I just plug my phone in and away I go. And it's like, oh my God, like the the, the ability, the, the nature of distribution changing is going to completely upend this market. And it has. What's, whole, what's so hard about figuring out sort of what comes next and, and what's going to be valuable in the future is you're always sort of, you, your, your viewpoint is naturally framed by what came before, right? Yes. And, and the problem is, 
this is such a fundamental shift. I mean, right? The entire reason why newspapers had value is because that was the only way to reach consumers. That's why mm. television stations had value. All those sorts of things. If and and it was in, the only way to reach consumers, not just for advertisers, but for writers as well, right? If I wanted to be a writer, uh, you know, twenty years ago, like it was go, you know, go work for the newspaper and work your mm-hmm. way up the chain, right? Right. And the other thing is like the sort of like dominant ones. You talk about like the New York Times will be fine, right? The New York Times is doing well. They get all the subscribers. Like it's great. I'm, I, but they're that dominance is predicated on the New York Times being an institution for like 150 years, mm. right? And and if you think about it, like one a new entity, it's gonna be very hard to sort of build up that that level of brand equity for one. And for two, how many people who actually drives the value for the New York Times, right? It's probably like not that many, not not that many people, right? And and you you see this in all sorts of platforms where the there's component providers that are driving a huge amount of value. Mm. And right now, in the old world, in the in the newspaper world, in the bundled world, in the in the large media entity world. The vast majority of that value was harvested by the sort of large entity, by the publisher, right? Like if you have someone who drives mm-hmm. X number of New York Times subscriptions, they may be worth like, I mean, five million or ten million or whatever to to the New York Times, and the New York Times may be paying them very lavishly. Maybe they're paying them a million dollars a year or something like that. The New York Times is keeping ninety percent of the value. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a good deal, right? right? And yes, I'm not saying the New York Times is making pure profit because all that money is going to subsidize. All the other writers who don't necessarily drive subscriptions, but make the New York Times, you know, a full featured sort of valuable newspaper, and that's mm-hmm. great. I mean, that's great from like a social value perspective. Like, just to be clear, I'm not like I, I hope I would love for newspapers to be viable entities going forward because I think a lot of the people and writing that are important aren't necessarily you know the reasons why people are subscribing. So this is just a pure sort of business analyst perspective i i recognize the challenges outside of that but i think the real danger for the new york times is what happens when those 10 to 15 people start to decide you know i why am i giving the new york times 90 percent of my value right what if i wanted to keep that value for myself you know and you have something like you know medium's coming along doing like this sort of subscription thing and and maybe i i would love if medium is is successful right and they they have a funding sort of people doing deep dives and sort of stuff and valuable stuff that's mm. needed for society like that would be that would be great but the question is if if the sort of writers come along that make the medium subscription really valuable uh, at what why don't those writers just go directly to users, right? And 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 it, it keep yeah. all the value for the, for themselves. There's one there's one state of the world which is that the folks at the New York Times leave, and that's a possibility. But the, if not that, then what's going to happen is the next generation of writers, like people like you, like if if someone with your talents who loves to write and is prolific, once upon a time, if you wanted to to reach a big audience, you needed to go 
you needed to go work at the newspaper, but more likely than not, more and more people are going to follow your path. And they already, they already are starting to. You tweeted out a link recently of all the different folks who've taken on business models just like yours. One person shop going direct to their, going direct to their audience, building a following, getting the, the people who really care about that topic to pay. Like those are folks that would have gone into Scientific American or, or, or the New York Times or the New Yorker. Increasingly, it's going to be the case. And these organizations are going to be starved of their future talent yep. as yeah, a result. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. And again, I recognize the value of the sort of the newspaper bundle, right? Where it, it, this has always been the case, right? There has been some number of folks have driven, have basically, it's been, have driven the value of the underlying sort of publication, which has funded lots of other stuff, which is a great thing for society, right? I, I recognize that, and mm. it's something that I think about, and I wish I had a you know a perfect you know answer to the way it's going to work in the future. I'm 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 more optimistic than most about sort of like crowdfunding and and community funding about that sort of stuff, but uh, we're clearly not there yet and there's a long long ways to go like just to be mm. just just to be clear but the economics are really problematic on the internet because if you don't if you don't need the bundle why are you paying the bundle uh, i mean you don't and you can put together the you put the together the bundle yourself or there are services out there that will put together put it together for you or i mean this is what the whole point of facebook is predicated on it has it has integrated across um, building that network and then uh, then figuring out what on all the stuff on the internet, including things that your friends are posting, is most interesting to you right now, and then keeping your attention glued to that feed. Right, because the I mean the at the end of the day, there's only like attention is the is the finite resource, right? Right. Anyhow, uh, I'm I'm a little or. <laughs> No, no, no. It's it's an interesting topic, but uh, you promised me cars. Yeah, sorry. We'll, we'll get we'll get to cars. So, <laughs> so in this article a couple weeks ago, I kind of if you think about the smiling curve in the context of cars, you know, traditionally there's been you know the, the assemblers have also kind of sold to the end users, and it's like it's an okay business. Like some, you know, it, it's not a great business. I think the average margin is in the single digits if you're the luxury car makers have traditionally made a little bit more but not that much more like the low low double digits i believe and there meanwhile there's there's massive companies that are built in the component business building the parts for these cars and i think i i had looking at some numbers in front of me like the return on capital is is generally about twice as good as they are for the the car manufacturers in part because some of these, particularly the specialists, make things that are sort of you know irreplaceable, and that and they can sell to everyone, and they can make good money off them. Yeah, it's funny. In many respects, uh, the car industry is pretty analogous to the PC industry in this regard. And even with differentiated manufacturers in the luxury space, it's hard for them to build products that are substantially different from their competitors. And so the price ranges are pretty similar and the feature sets are pretty similar, but there are certain things that everybody has to get. So if you're competing in that space, for example, like you want a ZF gearbox, like they are renowned, like these eight speed gearboxes are in all these luxury cars. They're the one thing that you have to get in. And it's it's kind of similar to 
uh, you want an Intel chip. Like you want this smooth ride, like the car changes gears smoothly. You Same thing with the computer. You want your Intel processor because you need that performance. And this is the only company that manufactures it. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's the same as what you were talking about before with the camera manufacturer. Like when you have one of these, commo- when you have one of these component parts that's so good and you must have it in order to put in your product, you are differentiated and you can sell that that com- uh, component for, a, uh, for, for more than you otherwise would be able to. Right. So what's interesting, though, is to think about what how this sort of chain is going to shift, right? Because mm-hmm. right now you have the smiling curve. So the, there is money being made by sort of bundling the assembly of cars and sort of the selling of cars, right? And again, we're saying it's great money, but yep. it's kind of like the Apple model, but to your point, the differentiation just isn't as extreme as it is when you have software to, to mm-hmm. leverage. And then on the, you have the component side, right? But if you think about in self-driving cars, what's so interesting is actually the ZF example is fascinating, right? I agree. ZF transmissions are amazing. Like the first time I drove a car that had one, it was kind of, it was honestly like, it was kind of mind blowing. Like my, my single favorite thing about driving mm. a luxury car was I could not believe the transmission and it says like i never thought about transmissions being a problem before before i drove a car with one right it's like oh my god this is just a completely different experience so i it's it's a perfect example what's funny is uh i don't really think about the transmission in a car if i'm riding in an uber or a lyft right i I, why i'm I'm, one i'm not actually like pressing the pedal and two, I'm sitting on my phone anyway, like doing something else and not really paying attention at all. And it's just that's sort of a hint at what what happens when the buyer changes. In the car market today, the driver is the buyer, and which means things that are valuable to the driver. Again, yes, well, the vast majority of cars are sold. They're sort of like commodities. Like you just need a it's transportation you get from here to there. But let's think about the luxury segment for one, right? Like the driver is buying things because it enhances the driving experience. What happens when no longer the buyer? I mean, it's it's in a it's a fantastic question, and there is actually there's like one other place where we can look to to find out what happens when. Uh, when something that used to be capitalized, like we used to go buy our car, suddenly becomes an operational expense, and that is the airline industry. Like it's nobody really cares whether that there are a few people, but for the most part, nobody really cares whether they're on a Boeing or an Airbus plane. What they care about is like, am I in first business or economy class? And that's kind of what's happening with with the car sharing market. Like I'll get an UberX and if it's a Prius or a Camry, then so be it. You're like, I'm not going to cancel because it's not the, the make of car that I want. And at this, at, as you go higher end, like the black car, well, if I get a Mercedes or an Audi, like either is great. Like it's no big deal. It, it like the removal of that starts to change the way, step back, these car manufacturers have put so much effort into building their brand if the if the buyer isn't like and it, it, when you're buying it this car is making a statement about you and like that's what all this marketing spending is all about and so on like if i'm just getting it if this is just becoming transportation all of that goes away it, that's such it, that's such a fascinating i, I love that point the, the analogy of first business and economy on airlines too like uber black versus uber x or super select or, or whatever the, the various levels are because that, that's exactly right that the different the point of differentiation fundamentally transforms and 
I, I love it. It's it, 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 it's such a great analogy, and you can see how this impacts every part of of the chain, right? And now think about like the the buying experience, right? So if you're buying say you're a fleet operator, right? And I think the long run, it is some sort of fleet operation is going to make sense, whether you know whether that's Uber or Google or whatever, we'll get to that in a moment. But if you're a fleet operator buying a bunch of cars for a service that people are going to ride in, what are you thinking about when you buy, right? Are you thinking about the driving experience? No, the drivers are completely, it's a, it's a commodity. And in the future, if it's a self-driving car, it's 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 the it is zero marginal cost, right? It's, it's a computer. It's software. It's the sort of thing where the upfront costs of R and D are massive, but to produce one more driving car bit of software costs zero. So right. so the driving experience doesn't matter at all. What does matter is things like reliability, serviceability, right? Mm-hmm. That if you have a fleet of cars and all they do is just shuffle around, like driving people around, it's really important that. They can handle the wear and tear, right? So, are you going to be worried about having a you know pristine transmission and that that can take off on the road and be super smooth? No, you're going to worry about a transmission that can start and stop a hundred times a day and not break down. Or if it does break down, it can be serviced very easily and and cheaply. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It like whoever. I mean, the 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 what you want, the basis on which you are deciding. Um, the basis on which you're deciding which car is most effective for your use completely changes in that regard. And the, like, like whatever margin that so many of these manufacturers have has been built on this brand that, that is no longer going to matter anymore because the, the ultimate driving experience doesn't matter if you're sitting in the back seat being driven by somebody else. Right, exactly. And so when the buyer changes, everything in the value chain changes. And that's yeah. and that's what you're going and so that's kind of part one what you're going to see and then part two what's what's interesting is the the value in the component chain is going to change as well right it's not just the cars itself it's very easy to look forward and see that oh it's not going to mean as much if it's a Mercedes or a BMW or you know a Toyota or a Ford or whatever it might be because you know you're not the one buying anymore but that backs all the way up into all the parts of the value chain itself, right? The, the transmission doesn't doesn't matter. What does matter, what might be very valuable, is say, for example, the components of a self driving car, right? The to, not to draw too neat of a, a of a line here, but the camera, for example, that goes into a self driving car, which is oh, yeah. what Intel bought, right? They bought Mobileye, which is a a they do the cameras on cars so if you have a car that has like the the all-around viewing or whatever which is you know most luxury cars have these days uh that's probably built by mobileye and it's not just a camera it's also the associated they have a chip that they manufacture and so it's a hardware software sort of integrated sort of solution and that's becomes very valuable if you do something that no one else does that enables behavior that customers really value, right? If you make the best sort of lens for a smartphone and Apple believes that a camera is a very is a very important differentiator for their devices, guess what? You have a company that's super valuable. Same sort of thing. If you manufacture components that go into a self-driving car, it doesn't matter that the cars themselves have been completely commoditized because that particular piece of the car is unique and exclusive and very, very valuable, just like Intel chips were in the PC. 
Yeah, I mean, and this this exactly speaks to why the car manufacturers haven't been able to properly respond to this, because as you said, they're focused on the wrong buyer. Like they have built their businesses around uh, differentiating towards the consumer, and it is such a so when they see something like self-driving, like there's this fantastic, and I'm a car guy, but there's this fantastic video of BMW that built this self-driving car that can slide uh, literally like um, just, it, it, it's sideways half the time, just going around the track, just drifting the entire time. And the driver's sitting back there and the car's doing it all for him. And he looks like he's like this expert drifter. But like, that's how they think of self-driving cars uh, or the self-driving technology as a mechanism to extract more money out of consumers to differentiate their brand further as the ultimate driving machine. When the way in which they need to be focused is actually the future buyer of, of vehicles is going to look very different from the past. It's going to be fleets. And therefore, the way we should be focusing our efforts is on what these fleet manufacturers are going to uh, are after. And at the same time, like the com- commodity, no, not commodity, the component manufacturers who've been serving the vehicle manufacturers very happily also are going to be in trouble to some extent because they've been focused on creating uh, components that differentiate to consumers as opposed to thinking about components that differentiate to these fleet buyers in a self-driving world. What's, and what's really interesting about this is the companies that are probably the furthest along on like self-driving, it, it, I mean, the car companies, it, it's, it's really fascinating. They mostly are the luxury Companies, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Inside Tesla for a moment, but but like BMW and Mercedes, like the technology is of a similar level to Tesla. I think they're just a little less aggressive in in, in enabling it. But the but what's interesting is they need to they like they have market competitive pressures to go into self driving. But even though that's sort of like really bad for them in the long run, right? Because right now, for now, self driving capability is a luxury feature. And you know BMW just came out with the new five series and has all this self driving sort of sort of technology, but in the long, which is great and interesting, and because Mercedes came out with the E series last year, which has a bunch of it, and Tesla has been even far more aggressive and has been ahead of them, so they have to respond, but they're responding with the sort of what's what's the worst thing for their sort of future, which is fascinating. And and on the flip side, on the flip side, you have companies like say Ford or or or, or GM. What's interesting is Ford and GM have been relatively aggressive in sort of going into the ride-sharing sort of thing, right? Uh, Ford's made noise about building their own sort of thing. GM has actually invested in Lyft. And what's interesting is I actually think in some respects it's the Fords and GMs of the world that are arguably better positioned in the long run than like Mercedes or BMW because a Ford or GM, they're already operating on sort of low margin selling Mm -hmm. a commodity good. And the transition is selling to fleets. They actually sell to fleets, right? That's why your rental car is always a freaking GM or Ford because you know that someone, someone's got to buy them. Right. And, And the, whereas the luxury car makers are, are in worse shape in many respects because yeah, they're they're selling to the wrong buyers for the future. Yeah, I I think the watching the way this will play out again, you can look at the the airline industry and the extent to which it has consolidated. And I I actually dug into this a little bit to try and predict who the winner might be. And to many respects, given the advanced manufacturing capabilities they have and the volume they do, I suspect Volkswagen might be one of the the last players standing in terms of like their ability to churn out like 
reliable cars at low cost at massive volumes like they're already they're already in they're already kind of in that sweet spot and you're exactly right like the folks that rely much more on brand to get that increased margin in the past like their ability to rely on that is going to be completely gone and it's going to be fleet manufacturers in the same way that pc manufacturers everyone kind of anchors on high uh, on uh sorry samsung to uh, purchase their memory because like they've just made the biggest investment and they're able to do it at scale and the cheapest and people have dropped out as they've tried to compete. I suspect the same thing will end up happening with the um, with the autom- the actual car part of the self-driving cars in the future. Right. And so what's really interesting is the – so the middle like the sort of manufacturing – like someone – Obviously, someone's going to be making these cars, right? I don't think there's going to be much money there. It is probably going. Mm. There's going to be, I think, you know, consolidation in the long run. But I, what what's interesting is, I think, yeah, the PC market is a really interesting possible analogy because there's going to be, I think, a lot of value in the components, the components that go into creating the components for a reliable and serviceable car for one, but also obviously the components that go into self-driving, like the actual software and and hardware that goes into making these systems, whether that be mobile eye, whether it be the sort of uh, LiDAR, you know, uh, things which have been uh, obviously uh, uh, in the news a lot lately. What's interesting is it's not clear, it's not totally clear where the sort of software part is going to play, right? Because there, there, there's two parts, there's two parts to the software, to the software mm-hmm. angle. Part one is the self-driving part mm-hmm. of the software, right? Where, in the case of Mobileye, like there is software that goes into Mobileye, right? It, it's it's it is software integrated with hardware is what they're selling. They are bundling those two together. You're not buying just a camera, right? You're buying mm-hmm. a solution for uh, collision avoidance, or you know, and and the the and whatnot. On the other side, there is software when it comes to the actual ride sharing services themselves, right? I mean, again, the the sort of natural outcome that makes the most sense, I think, in the long run, particularly for self driving cars, is not that you own your own self driving car, like that's like, is, but rather that self driving cars, right? It makes it makes no sense, but that self driving cars are available as a service. And what's interesting is to what extent will self driving cars themselves be? be a commodity, right? Because if Intel and Mobileye are successful in their sort of camera-based approach, then Intel is definitely taking a sort of component sort of approach. And the Germans are very much into this with the with the maps, right? Intel bought into Here Maps. So basically the owner of Here Maps is Intel and BMW and and Volkswagen and and Mercedes. They mm-hmm. uh and because that's an important component, but they're they're approaching it as a as a component play where that will be available to everyone to to do that sort of thing. Whereas Google is has been very much you know internally focused, and they're actually creating their own hardware, like the the lidar sensors and things like that. It's much more of a self contained integrated model, but all this stuff has to get to market somehow. And what's interesting is. This is where the fate of of things like like Uber rest, right? Uber is in hot water for the allegedly stealing designs for for lidar from Google, and obviously Uber has been trying to build their own self driving the own self driving technology. And what's interesting is if the, this sort of approach of Intel and Mobileye and Here Maps and where self driving becomes a component that's available for purchase by whoever it might be, uh, you know, 
BMW and Mercedes for now, but the Fords and Toyotas and Volkswagens of, of, of the future. That's actually, I think, the best possible outcome for Uber because if self-driving technology is available to everyone, then owning Uber's sort of current advantage will continue in which they own demand. They own the sort of network and you're going to get the, all the positive effects that come from that network and you, you, you have like fleets building up to service Uber and Uber by having the most customers will get the most support, get the most you know, cars in this case if, if drivers go away and you'll get the, the similar sort of effects that you have today and in some respects uh, I would actually – you can make the case that Uber's entire dabbling into self-driving cars is not just – potentially like a criminal act if if these allegations are true but it's actually dumb because they benefit in a world in which self-driving technology is commoditized not because their natural advantage will come to play they don't necessarily need to own it at all so the the question becomes whether an integrated play whether the change in the whole putting the putting a car together in a self-driving world is so different from putting a car together in the old world that actually coming at it from an integrated point of view which is the approach that Google is now taking lends itself an advantage in terms of building a self-driving car versus the more uh, commoditized taking components off the shelf approach that uh that um that, that that you're describing in terms of if this ecosystem bubbles up and i i don't have a strong point of view on the answer um i would say that when you get these step change technologies that are being introduced it always helps to be integrated the question is is this enough of a change from the way things were done previously that being integrated is an advantage and i think the reason uber's playing here is in the event that it is a big advantage and google gets out in front uber does not want to be wholly reliant on google in order to be the only supplier of this vehicle that's light, that's sh- head and shoulders above everybody else. I, I, yes, uh, I think I'm increasingly of the opinion that that Uber, <laughs> a lot of their success is being in the right market and being really aggressive, and mm-hmm. not much of it is due to them actually being having much strategic acumen. <laughs> So yeah. th- that that may be a generous interpretation, albeit a, a valid one. Yeah, because if Google if Google actually has a workable self driving car and they want to like if they want to go into the market the the, the ride sharing market with that, obviously that's a, that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem for 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 Uber. And when so when Uber says that oh it's an existential threat, yes, the concept of self driving cars, if there were a completely separate ride-sharing service that you self-driving cars and Uber didn't, Uber would be in big, big trouble, no question. I, I guess the that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that that's the way self-driving cars are going to come to market. If that, And I think Uber would have probably been much better served not trying to compete with Google on Google's playing field. And if mm-hmm. Google actually has it in them to actually build out an entire service and bring those to market, like you, it's almost like you tip your hat, like they, they pulled it off. Actually, Google, the history of Google's and software and not software, the history of Google and go-to-market and business models suggests that that may be a bit optimistic. And had I been Uber, I would have invested in and pushed much more in getting this sort of component modular approach. Mm. Because in in the future, in a modular world, that's what aggregation is. You aggregate demand and you take advantage of all the suppliers being modular, 
right? That's in Uber's entire model. And Uber was like trying to shift from that model to being a fully integrated provider. I don't think it was, I think it was a mistake. Yeah, I mean, possibly. It just relies upon the fact that the modular provider is going to win when it, when it comes to the deployment of the... It might not win, but are you going to be better off like you, you got to make a bet, right? You can't cover all your bases. You got to decide sort of which direction you're you're going to go. And if it actually ends up that Uber committed the actions or auto the actions that Google is alleging, and you know Google maybe through discovery maybe looking to to prove much more than that. And if it was all done in what was not necessarily the only way to market, that would be uh, that'd be quite the strategic m- misstep. It, it uh, absolutely, it absolutely would. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays, that case plays out. Yeah, I, I know we've been a little bit over all over the place on on, on this podcast. I mean, I, I think, but I, I think it's typically what we do though is we go in on a company or and we follow the company through. And I think what was interesting about this one is that rather than follow a company, we followed a concept through, and the applicability of the concept or the framework to different in uh, to different areas. And I think it is a fantastic way, a fantastic frame through which to view the world, particularly as the internet changes things. I think it's a fantastic way of like whether it's the media industry, the computer industry, or the car industry, like being able to predict what's going to happen next. It, um, and what's so, it's so interesting because the I feel Google has screwed this whole thing up too, right? Google could have been Windows, like in when it comes to self-driving cars, and maybe they still can be, right? Where they can charge a license fee, and in the long run, every single car in the world is paying X amount of dollars to Google. Like that seems like a pretty good business. Like I don't know why Google would want to build the entire sort of thing on their own. Well, I'll tell you what the the truth is. Google just likes building cool technology, and they don't want to think about the business model. <laughs> there's there's a definitely a pattern of behavior to that statement that I would agree with. <laughs> yeah the I, the car the future of cars really looks a lot like PCs. And if you think about PCs, also PCs were mostly like uh, fleet buyers, right? For lack of a better term. It was all enterprises buying these huge orders. It really wasn't selling to consumers. Whereas the phone market today, like today's smartphone market is a lot like the car market has always been, where you're selling to individual, the user is the buyer. And so you differentiate on experience and on brand and on status and all like we've made the analogy of the status of a luxury car to the status of an iPhone. And it's a real thing that that, that is a, a powerful differentiator for apple but what's funny is the future of cars is is actually like the 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 past of technology yeah and yes. and if you th- and that's where i would be looking at for the business model i would not be looking at smartphones to think about the business model of of self-driving cars and these networks i'd be looking back to pcs where where was all the value the value was in super highly differentiated technology which was uh, Intel back in the day, and potentially Intel or Mobileye or or or, or Nvidia is is the huge player here, which we haven't talked about, but it has to be talked about in the discussion of cars. And it's going to be in the soft. It could potentially be in the software. And what's funny is the old Windows model that we thought, man, once upon a time to actually make pure money on software, you don't have to attach it mm. to something like Apple did, right? Well, guess what? I actually think that that could work in this model where. Particularly because what's so if everything works together, it's better, right? If all the cars have the same software and they can talk to each other, 
that that's actually a much more powerful way to approach self-driving than have all of them be you know autonomous agents trying to figure out what the other one's doing do you know what's interesting that over the over the course of probably our lifetimes what is considered the most important purchase for the coming of age uh, american uh, like 18 to whatever it used to be owning a car and now it's switched to owning a smartphone and as that switch has taken place it's almost like the the business model is flipped. Whereas needing the differentiated car used to be most important. It's moving towards a world with this new technology where the commodity car is fine. And in the past where it used to be uh, owning the commodity PC or phone was fine. Now it's like you really want to invest in, in owning that differentiated item because it's more important to your life. Yep. Anyhow, we've gone uh, very long, uh, but anyhow, it was we had to catch up for last week, so it was good to talk to you again. I I, I appreciate your kind words and welcoming me back. Yes, it's uh, it's good. To and be our here. thanks to Mailchimp, a component maker for Stratechery and a uh, sponsor of Exponent. Yes, thanks, guys. I will talk to you next week. Good chatting, mate. Speak to you later. Yeah, bye bye.